Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Siemens Mobility podcast, Moving Beyond. I'm your host, Professor Sally Eves, and in today's episode, we're discussing Crossrail, the project of the century for London and a fantastic example of partnership. In our discussion, we'll be exploring how a brand new railway is a game changer for travel infrastructure, even in a mega city like London, and of course, relevant to cities all across the world. We'll also look at the ways in which digitalization is an enabler for modern urban mobility. But within this, there's still no substitute for testing all the processes in real life. And we'll also learn what's happening right now in this key area. And underpinning it all, the vital importance of strong collaborative relationships and how ecosystem partners can work together to develop and implement the right solutions at the right time. And to do this, I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Morris, who is Managing Director for Rail Infrastructure at Siemens Mobility. Welcome to you, Rob. Thank you, Sally. Great to be here. Oh, thank you, Rob. My pleasure. And equally, a very warm welcome to Mark Wilde, who is Chief Executive Officer at Crossrail Limited. And this is the company established in 2001 that was set up to build the new railway and will ultimately become known as the Elizabeth Line. A warm welcome to you too, Mark. Hi, Sally. It's great to be here. To get us started, I think it's always excellent to know a little more about the people behind the technology and the project we're discussing today. So first, turning to you, Mark, I'd love to find out a little bit more. And both of you have clearly worked in infrastructure and the transport industry for some years now. And excuse my my little pun here, but in a certain way, the rails of your two lives are really kind of intersecting at the moment. And I think it's a great transition to discuss Crossrail in detail. So I'd love to hear how you describe your relationship and what you really appreciate about one another. Thanks, Sally. Yeah, it's a good metaphor, isn't it, about uh, railway people's careers crisscrossing like tracks, I suppose. But I guess Rob and I have known each other for, for quite a while. Uh, my background is I'm an engineer. I, I grew up in the northeast of England, uh, went into the power industry, but I've been in the rail industry oh, for, for 25 years, 30 years, I suppose. But I've also been the uh, managing director of the Tube, London Underground. I've run public transport in the state of Victoria in Australia. And uh, latterly, I've been um, the person in charge of Crossrail, the special purpose vehicle building this um this immense railway underneath London. You know, Siemens are a key partner, key technology partner in the delivery of Crossrail. So we work extensively together. And uh, I certainly value Rob's uh, leaning in to me because we certainly can't get this railway done without our supply chain partners. And, you know, Siemens are number one in our supply chain in terms of importance, closely followed by Alstom, who've built the trains. Uh, what, what about you, Rob? I'm really pleased to follow on from that. I've worked uh, in many cultures across uh, lots of countries, and I guess I've benefited from the diversity of doing things differently in, in different ways and, uh, and the many challenges different high-profile projects and programs bring in, in such places. I guess the one thing in common with everything I've been involved with is is people. And things to be successful, even in the face of diversity, a rich and uh, honest relationship built on trust must be there. That's a really insightful, really personal um, description there. Kind of the liberation of collaboration through that trusted partnership came to the fore for me. I absolutely love that. So thank you both for sharing. I think that's, that's fantastic. So I think now maybe we'll dip into more about Crossrail. 
So just giving some context there to how big a project this is. Clearly, this is a huge, ambitious project. And I'm thinking probably the biggest one of your careers so far. So I'd love to hear a bit more about everything that makes this project so special and unique. So perhaps to, to you, Mark, first on that one. Yeah, well, it is a special project. Yeah, at, at its time, it was Europe's biggest construction project and the sixth biggest project in the world. Um, it'll have few peers, actually, in the world as a railway when it opens. It's uh, 42 kilometres of tunnelling underneath London, which we would all know is a, a, real, a real challenge to work in, probably the most complex city in the world in terms of its archaeology and its kind of megacity infrastructure. The point of Crossrail is to join two regions of southern England together, the western region, which includes Heathrow Airport, and in the eastern region, out, out to the east uh, beyond London. And a bit like RER in Paris or the S-Bahn in somewhere like Munich, uh, the point of Crossrail is not to bring big intercity trains into Terminus and then get them onto small tube trains like London Underground works at the moment. It's to bring the trains all the way through, so from Heathrow Airport straight through to Paddington, then dive into a tunnel, take you all the way through to Canary Wharf, which is one of the financial centres of London. Very much a, an unusual thing in Britain, a game changer, really. Uh, the point of Crossrail is to create capacity, 10% boost to uh, London's rail transport network in one go. It'll carry 250 million trips every single year, which will make it the second busiest uh, tube line in London. We'll take people on very economical fares straight from Heathrow Airport to Canary Wharf in 41 minutes, um, completely step-free. That's the other big attribute of the uh, the Elizabeth Line, which stretches all the way from Reading to the west of London to Shenfield in the east, 70-odd kilometres of completely step-free railway. So it's a genuine game-changer. And also technologically, uh, nine new big deep tube stations in London, all of them nine stories deep down to 30 to 40 metres depth, huge digitization. It's the first genuine digital railway in Britain, and it'll have few peers in the world, actually. And of course, Siemens have been instrumental in that. It's a game changer. Uh, interestingly, it's been envisaged since 1820, when the Regent's Canal in London got full and somebody decided they needed another canal east to west. Then, of course, the railways came along in the 1840s in, in London and Britain. So Crossrail's been around for, for decades, hundreds of years, and it's in its current incarnation, it started 20 years ago. So it's taken 20 years to get to this point, and we are in the phase of trial running now and looking forward to opening the railway in the next six to nine months. So it's, a, it's an exciting time, but it's, it's certainly had its challenges, Sally. Absolutely. And we'll definitely dive into those as well, Mark. Thank you. But the numbers you mentioned there, I mean, that's certainly a service I would benefit from. And I think that's that's incredible. So, um, Rob, from your perspective, the partnership involved in making this happen, you know, why is this so special to you? I, I'm sure there's going to be some echoes here of what Mark's mentioned. But I'd love to just hear your perspective too. You just have to say, wow. You know, I've been blessed with working on some great uh, programmes through my career, the 
2012 Olympics being a particular highlight. But Crossrail stands out for its complexity, you know, and the sort of the long-term beneficial impact to the capital uh, and, of course, the rest of the UK. As Mark says, uh, you know, it's also been a vanguard project introducing, you know, many new ways of doing things and it's a, a techno- technological showcase which i think will bring a long lasting legacy but also set the benchmark for all future transport projects here in the uk and 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 worldwide you know for me uh crossrail is a once in a lifetime thing and it's brought the whole industry together it really is marvelous Fantastic. And it kind of brings me on to another topic area, really, to drill in a little bit more about how this is a game changer for travel infrastructure. Um, But I'm just thinking for non-Londoners in our audience today, can you explain a little bit more about why that connection is so, so important? What the Elizabeth Line is delivering for London, but also for the South East? Maybe to Rob first this time. Mark has articulated many reasons around um, why Elizabeth line is so important and i think the first one uh, for me is is actually the economic benefit of bringing jobs for many londoners and people from across the country for the construction operation and, and maintenance of the line uh, on top of that uh, will be the time saved by improved transport connections along with enhanced accessibility for many millions of folks uh, and I, I believe it will also act as a, a leveling up lever for want of a better way of putting it as it improves connectivity not just across the southeast uh, but the whole country and i think uh, during these uh, current economic times um that is of uh, of great importance absolutely rob and mark how will this new line really integrate into the existing london transport system just to get a little bit of a view of that area yeah well london as most people will know even if they've not been to london that it's got a highly interconnected, uh, advanced transport system. You know, 10,000 buses, 10 tube lines, a lot of rail, tram networks. So London's already hyper-connected in terms of its um, transport offering. And the Elizabeth Line, uh, which is the thing that Crossrail creates, uh, really enhances that. So all of our nine central stations, they're all either associated directly with a London underground station, like somewhere famous like Farringdon or Paddington, but also it creates new opportunities, new journey opportunities, which is the key the key thing about Crossrail. Uh, East-West matters because in London, the East-West transfer of people, particularly for economic reasons, whether they're moving to a financial centre in the city or the, um, the Canary Wharf financial centre, or if you're a construction worker, who lives in the east in Essex outside of London and wants to traverse east-west into uh, employment opportunities are really important. So this this new artery of London is really very important. At the moment, our central line covers a lot of this ground, but it's completely full. And most people who've travelled on the central line would realise it's, it's, it's over capacity. And I think, interestingly, I don't know what Rob would think about this, but... The, the, the era of coronavirus, I, I think, is, is temporary. It's clearly got a significant effect of travel patterns. But, you know, we build these, you know, Crossrail's built for 120-year design life. It'll be here for decades, not even hundreds of years. So I think you'd agree, Rob, that even in the era of coronavirus, these sort of investments really count 
both for the construction jobs and technology jobs they create in the making, but also for the future. Would you agree on that, Rob? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we're already seeing signs of, uh, if you like, the nation bouncing back in terms of use of of transport. So uh, I think we will get to uh, similar levels, if not greater, uh, in time. So um, I think uh, Crossrail is, uh, you know, a great investment and a much needed one and will be a sustainable one. And thinking a little bit more about the Elizabeth line from its digitalization um, point of view, I'd love to share a bit more about how this is different to other metros. So, for example, why the railway has been designed with three signaling systems and also why did you decide the need to integrate those three instead of, for example, selecting one supplier? So, Mark, if you could um, elucidate a little bit more about that, that would be fantastic. It's interesting, isn't it, Crossrail, that a lot of its problems in 2018 are because of its immense complexity. And if you go back in a time machine to um, 2004, 2005, the key risk perceived in in Crossrail was tunnelling under London. And interestingly, it went really well, the tunnelling. The major civils and the tunnelling were expertly done. In fact, set a benchmark that's now replicated all, all around the world. But at that time... Uh, the architects of Crossrail made a decision to be very bold in terms of digitization. They wanted uh, full-height platform screen doors through the central section. They wanted uh, automatic train operation, GOA2, just like you find in uh, the Jubilee Line or the Victoria Line. But they also wanted uh, ETCS uh, capability in the, the classic network, the classic national rail network. So they were very, very ambitious in 2005, 2006. Not only that with the signaling systems, they also wanted the state of the art in terms of digital um, condition-based monitoring, maintenance tools. They wanted the these new stations to be heavily digitized. And I guess it was the first use in the UK anyway of tools such as BIM, digital twins. So it was an immensely ambitious project Crossrail, and we've learned loads in the digitization. I'm sure Rob would agree that we've had some very interesting twists and turns in the road. But I think the fascinating thing about Crossrail for future mega projects is the tunneling was perceived to be the greatest risk. What actually transpired to be the greatest risk in Crossrail was the immensity of system integration and also how leadership was as important as the technology. And I guess, Rob, you and I every single day deal with this, don't we? And I, I'd be interested in your perspective and your journey because you clearly won these contracts and um, it's been a few twists in the road, Rob, and teams. But I'd be interested in your view on that question. I think um, as the construction uh, project uh, progressed um, and many challenges that occurred during that time, uh, the time for testing uh, and commissioning actually got uh, crunched up. Uh, and so when Mark came on board, um, he not only had to deal with um, uh, finalising the construction activities and um, and pushing those on uh, over the line, which is uh, largely done, still some work to do, um, but it was also how to get a fully coordinated approach around systems integration assurance to allow us to get to that and um, uh, all the testing and commissioning that was required. And uh, to join up a couple of things, really, um, that sort of 
multi-dimensional view of life because of the various experience from different backgrounds, but all in harmony with um, um, with what we wanted to achieve to bring those rail systems in operation has allowed us to uh, to actually lean in on each other. I'd love to ask you, Rob, a little bit more information from, from what you're doing from a Siemens mobility perspective. So obviously you're delivering signalling um, for Crossrail Central section, um, but you also have a, a separate role as well around covering communications and control. So that capacity to talk to each other and the train, all the different integration elements here are so, so key. So I'd love to know, you know is this a standard project for you or are there special challenges involved? Well, it's actually a bit, a bit of both. You know, the fundamentals of what we are doing on the Elizabeth line and what we do every day, really, uh, whether that be the communication control package that you mentioned or the signaling. Uh, so in that way, it's pretty standard. Uh, as an example, to sort of put some context around that, the, the train guard MT system we use for signaling and train control in the central operating section is probably 80 to 90% standard. Uh, with the balance being novel uh, to crossrail. Uh, the real complexity comes with the scale uh, and tailoring to the nuances of the infrastructure and the operational needs of the operator and particularly the complexity of the interfaces and other systems which we uh, need to integrate with. So if I can ex- explain a little bit more perhaps, uh, the train itself, which is provided by Alstom, you know, carries its own train control and management system, which has oversight over its own subsystems and functions such as brakes, doors, uh, passenger information and the like. Uh, so essentially all the onboard stuff. On top of that, each train carries three types of uh, onboard signaling units which control the safe and reliable passage of, of the train from east to west and, and vice versa, as Marcus explained. Um, as the trains pass through the, the central operating section, it's our CBTC uh, system or communications-based uh, train control system that guides and control, controls the safe and uh, uh, timely passage, uh, whilst also interacting with things like the opening of platform screen doors and other infrastructure-related systems. So the additional c- c- complexity comes when our system also has to shake hands with and take over or give control to either of the other signalling systems uh, which operate on the mainline railway either side of the Elizabeth Line or en route to uh, Heathrow. All three systems have to be developed to suit uh, the needs um, I've mentioned, and each, uh, as each configuration of software is dropped onto each system, you can imagine the testing required is is actually immense. You know, it really is a massive undertaking to bring all that lot together and make it work like a a Swiss a Swiss watch. Um, and um, we're in that process uh, now of uh, trying to achieve that, uh, and uh, we're getting there. So, Rob, just moving on from, from your last point there, I understand the frequency of trains using the Crossrail route will be up to 24 per hour in each direction in the central section. So what special challenges come up here with these particular requirements? 
as a business, uh, you know, we have proven experience of delivering high frequency systems in, in both a, a metro environment uh, as well as on mainline. Um, for Thameslink, which uh, has a, an automatic train operation capability with ETCS, we have uh, a 24 uh, the train per hour uh, capability and on the Victoria line, which uh, Mark will be very familiar with, um, we, we are achieving 36 trains uh, per hour, so both very high. The trains continuously calculate and communicate their status and position to the wayside along the line, uh, and this includes the exact uh, position, speed, direction, and braking distance. The main challenges are around tuning for maximum performance and uh, reliability, particularly around uh, integration with all the other uh, interfacing uh, systems. And, and we've actually uh, been through that process um, on Crossrail uh, over the last through a few months and we now into that next phase of, of trial running um, to um, uh, actually move into effectively resilience testing. Mark, if I could pass back to you a little bit, just to give a little flavour of the changes that um, commuters can expect or visitors or residents when the Elizabeth line comes into operation. Well, I think they'll, um, I hope that they'll be uh, amazed and blown away by what what we've built. Uh, Here we've built very, very large cathedral-like stations. They're very spacious, they're very open, they're architecturally striking, and I think will stand the test of time. Platforms are 250 metres long, full-height platform screen doors. It's got all the appropriate um, customer information system, connectivity. Uh, Because it's being built on a really brilliant tunneling and uh, great track formation. We expect it to be a smooth ride, you know, limited noise in the cab, uh, full Wi-Fi and 4G capability. So I think the customers certainly in London will be amazed at, wow, this is a real modern, you know, future-proof state-of-the-art metro that's been bitten, uh, built. Sorry, and I, and I think that the real game changer is, of course, somebody arriving at Heathrow Airport and getting on the train and seamlessly getting to Canary Wharf in 40, 41 minutes, all for about 60% of what they pay now. So I think I think from an affordability point of view, a time-saving point of view, an ambience and a customer experience, we think the whole package will, um, will be really impressive to people. And I think important in the recovery of London and the UK from coronavirus, like every country in the world, every city in the world, uh, everybody wants to recover from this desperate situation we've been in. And uh, certainly within Transport for London, who are the owners of the Elizabeth Line, we very much see the opening of the Elizabeth Line as a, a renaissance, a, a kickstart to a, a brighter future, I hope. So it really matters, the Elizabeth Line, and certainly what Siemens do in the Elizabeth Line uh, matters as well. Everybody knows that uh, th- this really matters, this project. It matters for the country and it matters for the industry. I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, there's a number of well moments from everything you've described so far about what to expect from this, you know, from a personal perspective, but that broader one that you were describing as well. And there's been challenges to learn from across the way. So if we could drill into those a little bit so that people can kind of share from the learnings from that, um, perhaps to Rob first on this one. I guess... Firstly, what has been achieved on Crossrail is, you know, astonishing when you look at it. 
and you see the scale of what has been built under under the city of London. You know, most of the uh, sub elements in their own right are major projects alone, and, and when you bring them all together, uh, you end up with uh, a complex uh, mega program, and the sheer scale and complexity of it means that it would always be difficult to plan for every eventuality and its potential impact. And I think it's fair to say that it's unfortunately quite common in mega programs uh, for things uh, not to go quite to plan. Uh, on Crossrail, there were uh, various construction delays with the limited access to trains, uh, compressed signalling testing time uh, and the integration with the other systems, which I, I touched on earlier. And I think for us as a supplier, you know, in the early days, we didn't really see the whole picture Um but latterly, with Mark um, at the helm and his team, you know, we have all been in the same hall. We've all been owning the hall. We've all had clear visibility of where the challenges are and uh, really now bringing this program uh, together and um, home. Mark, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this in terms of the challenges and, and how they've been addressed. First, I've got to acknowledge what an amazing job the original team did. I mean, Building this this underneath a city like London is a hell of a challenge. You know they found they found three thousand skeletons in the old Bedlam uh, burial ground in London, a medieval burial ground, and archaeologists had to excavate one of our shafts literally with teaspoons and little brushes. So it's mind blowing actually the civil engineering effort, and we should always start by honouring that. The challenges on Crossrail were really. The accumulation of system integration risk, that, that's fundamentally. In system integration, though, you know, you often see about system integration being a contact spot. It's, uh, it's an active ingredient. And that's what we've tried to bring into Crossrail. And certainly if you go to 2018, when the project really got into a lot of difficulty, it was lack of understanding of the whole picture and how everybody had to play their part. And I think, you know, the big lesson from the digital railway is, You've really got to, at the very, very beginning, make it easy for the people to hook it up and connect it at the very, very end. So I think the civil engineering went brilliantly on Crossrail, but unfortunately, the system integration at the end was a real challenge. And in 2018, you know, they thought they had six to nine months to go on the project, and we we actually had three years to go. Now, how can that be when you have an expert team in the centre And I guess uh, if there's any learning to take away from it, my rule of thumb, Mark Wilde's cross-rail rule of thumb would be, as system integration complexity increases, as does exponentially the need for centralised control and coordination. So that's that's the key that we've tried to bring. We've tried to bring a sense of coordination in the centre and understanding that we can't just operate it through contractual lines. We all have to cross the line together. It's like a tough mudder kind of um, obstacle course with a with a platoon of 10 people. You know, if the 10th person gets stuck in the mud, you've got to go and drag them over the line. You, you've all got to cross the line together. And I think that spirit is the, the key thing in system integration, much more what you find in an R&D organisation, which is why I think... Siemens are so good at it. It's kind of the core business underneath the skin of Siemens, like an agile, inquiring mind sort of organization. 
I think uh, your uh, the Mark Wild uh, rule of thumb uh, around systems integration on real systems is is a very wise one, very spot on, and it does feel that we're in it together and we can see uh, each other's challenges, uh, each other's uh, problems, and uh, look to uh, uh, how we help each other to get through them, uh, and also not to be um, scared to um, own up when we've got problems and say, look, this is where we are, we need some help. Um, and, um, you know, it's refreshing really to be uh, uh, operating in, in that environment. Absolutely. You could literally visualize the, the kind of the team going over the line together and integrating the whole, not just in terms of the technology and the systems integration you were talking about, but also from, from the people factors as well. And the culture it just comes across so, so strongly in everything you're sharing here, which is wonderful to see. So let's talk a bit more about that finish line. So could you just bring to the fore you know, what the remaining phases are, the key work that's underway um, that I know is happening, so the key milestones at play. Um, so perhaps to, to Mark first on that one. Yeah, we're in the phase of trial running, which is um, doing two things, really. It's uh, completing the, the testing and reliability shakedown of the system. So it's actually technically phase five dynamic testing of Crossrail, but we call it trial running. And we, at the moment, we are running eight trends an hour. Um, by the middle of July, it'll be 12 trends an hour. Then in August, we do 24 trends an hour timetable demonstrations. And that leads us to the next phase of the project, which is trial operations. And really, the day you enter trial operations, you are 12 weeks away from opening the line. Trial operations is the dress rehearsal, really. It's the uh, moment when the operator, the station staff, practice evacuation. So this is all focused on getting to a point of trial operations later this year, when really you could you could set your watch to say we're going to open the railway in 12 weeks' time. And if I could change one thing, one thing to change, it's to put the operator, the maintainer, right the way up at the front and center stage, not just part of the team, more the team. Like we're all in this, we're all in the endeavor of making the operator and the maintainer easy to operate, easy to drive the trends. And it's easy to say those words in, in projects and mega projects that the operator is an embedded part of it. So I think at the moment, perhaps we'll look a little bit more around the digitalization aspect. And as we spoke about before, obviously so pivotal, but that real world um, physical testing element alongside it as well. So, Rob, just to set the context a bit about why are digital railways so complex? Firstly, I think digital is the future. So digital systems are also inherently more reliable as there is uh, less physical stuff to go wrong. The complexity which you refer to, Sally, though, comes when you are bringing a number of systems together in what's essentially a safety-critical environment. Uh, you know, in particular, attention is needed on how they are, are integrated uh, and therefore uh, assured as individual systems and collectively. So verifying the system works as specified, then validating in the environment which it is operating in needs to be tested really to the full, uh, not just in isolation, uh, but integrated with every other system as well. And it's really that uh, that that makes it complex. I, I don't know if you agree with that, Mark. So the problem with digitization is people bring 
the full the full amount the full the full articulation on day one what you really need to do in digitization and digital complexity is create the minimum viable product on day one and allow the operators and maintainers to scale up from the base when they're ready or can afford it or the customers even want it and i think what you find a lot particularly in crossrail but you see it everywhere are railway projects that start with the cathedral with everything, the stained glass windows, everything is built on day one. Whereas other organizations, other markets don't do that at all with digitization. They'll start with a minimum viable product. They'll make sure it's safe and reliable. It's usable. It can generate revenue. Then they'll enable the operator to, to build out from the core. And I think, you know, you see this all the time, your iPhone 1, you don't start with the iPhone 12, do you? You start with iPhone 1. So I think Siemens have an opportunity, I think, in Crossrail of thinking, well, how could you have created the minimum viable product on day one? And I think you'd agree, Rob, our path to where we've got to would have been a lot simpler if the minimum viable product would have been decided 10 years ago and the operator bought into it. Whereas what we've had to do at the very end of this project is really re-engineer it, create an earliest opening program, create a minimum viable product. It's really hard to do that at the end. And it's been very stressful and Siemens have been brilliant uh, partners in it. But it could have been a lot easier if only we designed the minimum viable product at the beginning. It seems obvious when you say it, but in transportation, we start by almost building the cathedral ready on day one. And that, that might be one of the big lessons from Crossrail. Really, really interesting. So I'd just love to drill into that a little bit more about how users and customers and equally operators and maintainers are going to benefit from this level of digitalization that you're bringing that's going to be implemented. So perhaps, Mark, if you could drill into that a little bit more. It's got to be safe. It's got to be reliable. And it's got to have the right journey time uh, coefficient into it. And then when you look at operators and maintainers, kind of a similar story, but a bit more experiential They almost need the foundation stones to get confidence in first. So just like customers value on day one, safety, reliability, journey time, what operators and maintainers value is repeatability, reliability, confidence that they can do the task, simplicity. So if you you did stand in the shoes of people who really matter, uh, fair-paying customers, and the people who've got to maintain and operate the systems, you quickly work out, you know, in the hierarchy of needs, what they really want. But, you know, I don't know, Rob, what do you think? I mean, is that is that the way you think and talk when you're talking about product development in Siemens and customer value propositions? Is that is that in your thinking? I think you've uh, you've covered all the bases there, uh, really. And um, I think what's happened over the course of the last uh, two or three years is all the issues that you mentioned there have become untangled. It's become a lot clearer now and we are focusing on those uh, those key things. Um, the minimum viable product, um, safety being at the forefront, whether that's occupational or um, the integrity of the system um, and making sure we have something that uh, uh, ultimately will uh, operate um, reliably um, for the client and something that we can then build on. 
just love to hear a little bit more about some of the challenges that may have arisen with so many different stakeholders and delivery partners being involved in this project. So how did you really kind of facilitate that with the companies and people involved working together seamlessly and getting the best and most efficient outcomes from that? Perhaps over to you, Mark. Well, I think we were lucky that um, you know Crossrail was Europe's biggest construction project. We just had the best supply chain, you know. So I really, I had really <laughs> quite an easy job actually. That you know we had a world class supply chain that just needed to be tuned up. And I think uh, we took two, two, two thing, two spirits really, the spirit of two things that um, propelled us forward as a as a as a coalition. Firstly, transparency. We took a direct approach to, um, to to be completely transparent, even if occasionally it meant revealing things that were uncomfortable to the client and mistakes we'd made, and and also you know it could be confronting really to to say that as a client that you've 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 messed it up or you've screwed it up. And the second thing we did, as Rob mentioned a couple of times, this concept of owning the whole, or it's kind of a bit beyond one team. It's back to the tough mother. It's we've all got to cross the line together. Nobody could be left behind. Um, your your colleague and your friend's failure is very much your interest. You know, don't let your mates fail. And I think that those two kind of spirits of um, transparency and owning the whole are, are really, you know, what, what's propelled us forward. I suppose the question is, how do you do that at the beginning of projects, Rob, when people can be quite cagey, can't they, about commercial behaviours? I don't want your perspective. In a funny way, paradoxically, it was easier for us at the end in Crossrail, wasn't it, to get that momentum than it might have been at the beginning. I don't know. Do you have a perspective on that? I do. I think uh, some of it is around uh, procurement restrictions. Um, and, and perhaps also, uh, as, as a nation, uh, it might not just be our nation, actually, it might be a, a, a human thing, a sort of not invented here mindset. I think in terms of that silo approach that you you mentioned around collaboration, uh, but there's soon a realization that you know we all had to come together um, and uh, get it over the line, which we did successfully. And if I look at where we are now as Siemens. Um, you know, I think we have always been keen to collaborate. It's, you know, it is part of our culture. Um, but on Crossrail, it was written into our contracts from the onset. We, we will collaborate with other partners. The reality is that collaboration is a living thing, not transactional or contracted. So in my view, you know, productive collaboration began to materialise when you, Mark, took up the lead, knowing that we could only do it together and that everybody had to have um, aligned goals. And that really allowed us all to take the leaps of faith that we all wanted uh, to, because the absolute trust was there and, and we're all honest with ourselves. Uh, and I think we have achieved, you know, a considerable amount doing things that way. And I know with the challenges we still have to face, you know, they will be dealt with together. Um, and we'll be doing it on the basis of what's best for the program, um, not for um, individuals or individual companies or whatever. And, and when the program is delivered successfully, you know, 
as you say, as we cross the line together, uh, you know, we'll all be able to share the kudos that will come with that. Absolutely. I think this tough mudder example is going to stay with me. I have to say from the conversation today, it's, it's, it's a powerful one. It's a great visualisation. It describes so much of you know, what's really do, doing this finish lining aspect, isn't it? It's really coming to the fore. So, Rob, I'd just like to focus a little bit. Obviously, the pandemic experience that, we, that we've all shared over the last 18 months or so, uh, a huge major challenge and obviously one that's completely unexpected as well. How has that affected the ways of working on Crossrail? Um, well, when it came along, um, the impact was dramatic. You know, all of a sudden work uh, had to stop at, as Crossrail announced, a, a safe stop, uh, as they called it. So, you know, activities were reduced to uh, critical asset care and uh, own-based assurance and uh, documentation activities. Um, and the Fortunately, as we previously convinced Crossrail to allow us to build an integration facility at, at Chippenham, you know, we found ways to overcome the sudden impact of COVID travel restrictions, uh, you know, adapting uh, to the new situations. Uh, we strengthened um, remote working um, by uh, uh, improving the connection between uh, Chippenham and, and uh, our test centre in Braunschweig, um, thus building up our remote testing capabilities. So not only did we communicate virtually, we sort of continued to test and emulate the railway virtually uh, and remotely too. Uh, and this included bringing together systems provided by uh, other suppliers. So during lockdown, we effectively kept Crossrail's dynamic test uh, program going um, whilst access to the, the physical uh, railway was was prohibited. So um, we kept going despite that dramatic impact of uh, of uh, of COVID, essentially putting a, a halt to physical activities. I have to say, Rob, that combination really of ingenuity, pragmatism, I would say, and, and sheer determined effort, as you were describing there, that's that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that. And I'd love to uh, now go to an influencer question um, provided kindly by Gareth Dennis. Um, and this is for you, Mark. Hi, Sally. What are the skill sets needed for projects like Crossrail now and in the future? And how does diversity and inclusion play a role in this? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, you know, I think Crossrail is a project that got into trouble and had to be rescued. So I guess it's an extreme case. And I think if you look at the roots about how did Crossrail end up with such a, a difficult situation, and you've got to look at the uh, the leadership team previously who did a super, super job, but really could not see the uh, accumulation of risk around them. And I think the key lesson... Uh, in that regard is a leadership group that's kind of curious and is able to get feedback. Now, the way to achieve that is to create an inclusive culture where you want you want people to tell you where the gap is. You know, you don't, I think the days of a superhero program director are over really. The, the leader of the future will be a leader who can spot gaps and build teams around them that can fill fill gaps, you know. So that's like the, the cultural constructs. How do you deal with people and leadership in that sense where you need all the talents? You really need all the different people 
from different ethnicities, different genders, different age groups, different experiences. You really want to create that, um, it's an overused word, diversity, because it, it kind of, I don't know, it's become part of the common lexicon and it's become a word that people have forgotten its meaning. But really diversity to me is this kind of glittering array of talent, uh, all different types of people to enable you to see the gaps, to work together. Can you create an environment where you can be 360 degrees in a program? And that means an environment where people can speak and be honest. Then you need to add the people into that world. And in my view, it's you better just have the greatest possible diversity that you can possibly have. Um, and certainly in Crossrail, we've encouraged an environment of complete openness and transparency, 360 degree. Everybody's views are welcome. Even if people have daft ideas, we want to know. Mostly we're looking for people to spot the gap. And then we create an environment where all talents are to be there. You know, if I had my way in a future mega program, I'd build EQ and inclusivity right into the core at the beginning. Because I think back to my analogy of as complexity increases, so does the need for internal control and coordination. Well, that control and coordination is much better with all the talents, you know, and not like a mono view of the program. So I think it's a, it's a great question and it's a crucial debate. The problem in Crossrail, they just lost sight of where the risk really was. And people stopped telling them where the risk was. So I think um, really fantastic question that, and I'd encourage every program leader listening to this, every client, every government to really embed these principles at the very beginning. I could not agree more strongly, Mark, absolutely. So rounding off, I'm going to have a kind of fun question to finish. I've got to ask you this. We're bearing our mind in our conversation today. So Rob, first, what is your favourite means of transport to move around London? <laughs> right. Uh, to be absolutely honest, it's it's walking. Uh, if I have time, it's a fabulous uh, place to walk through and fantastic um, uh, sights. Um, but time is often at a premium, uh, so the underground is normally my first choice uh, and therefore favourite. And I know Crossrail will be at the top of my list when the Elizabeth Line is entered into service. Wonderful. And Mark, yourself? Well, I, as a former managing director of the Tube, it's got to be the Tube, who I still think is an icon. And uh, I love being the boss of it. And the Tube remains my favourite mode of transport. But I am a cyclist and I have enjoyed the recent resurgence of active transport, including cycling in London. So I'm enjoying riding my bike, but nothing really beats the Tube. Fantastic. Ditto with my vote as well, I have to say. Thank you both so much. Rob, Mark, honestly, it's been such a pleasure. And I think for me, this has just brought to the fore, A, an incredible project. This is very much a technology showcase and a human endeavour showcase and the benefits and the power of beautiful collaboration that you've both elucidated so strongly. And I really think it's going to be a powerful legacy for London, but also for cities right across the world. So thank you both for your time and thank you everybody for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Sally. Thanks, Rob.